everybody, it's good to be together to read God's Word together. So we're turning, as Daisy said, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, continuing our studies there in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. And so what's been happening then, as Paul has been going through this letter to the Corinthians, he's had to deal with a whole range of different problems in the church at Corinth. There's been problems about divisiveness, about you know following one leader over another. There's been problems about immorality, and sometimes really severe problems in that front. Problems about disorder in the church, as we were thinking about last week. Um, and then when he comes to chapter 15, he deals with a really serious problem, uh, perhaps the most serious doctrinal issue in the letter. Because apparently what's been happening in Corinth is that some of the believers there had started to say that there wasn't any resurrection of the dead. And Paul says as much in verse 12. He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, we don't know exactly what they were saying and the ins and outs of their arguments, but I suspect they were probably saying something along these lines. They were probably saying, well, the resurrection of the body is a very unspiritual notion. It's very earthly, very physical. And really, we want to focus on spiritual realities. And so the hope of the Christian is that, you know, we would transcend this mortal body and descend into the spiritual realm where God lives. And, that, and that's our hope. And that kind of idea was really common in Greek culture. The idea that the body was a kind of prison of the soul and the ultimate goal of people was to try and escape from the, the prison of the body and enter the pure realm of the spirit. And if this kind of idea had influenced the Corinthians, then you could imagine them saying that, oh, you know, the idea that Christ physically rose from the dead is a little bit problematic because that sounds very earthly. You know, let's say that Christ spiritually rose in our hearts. And they probably applied the same thing to believers and said, you know, our hope isn't to rise bodily from the dead. Our hope is to rise spiritually and to live in the transcendent realm of the spirit without our bodies in the future. Now, it's a worrying sign that some Christians will hear stuff like that and say, well, what's wrong with that after all? You know, is our hope not to just you know, float away and live in a cloud for all eternity? And you get this across the Christian spectrum on the very conservative side. You've got some Christians and they've got very little time for the idea of the resurrection of the body in the future. And for them, the sum total of the Christian hope is that we'll die and go to be with the Lord forever. And that's it. It doesn't matter if we've got bodies or not. On the other hand, you've got very liberal kinds of professing Christians, and they've got no time at all for the idea that Jesus physically rose from the dead, and they just have no, idea, no sense of the supernatural power of God. And they say, well, we're not going to say that Christ physically rose from the dead. It's okay to say that you know the disciples spiritually felt that he was still alive, and for them that was as good as being alive. And, and so they tried to rationalize away the, the resurrection of the body. And the problem on both sides is that the resurrection of the body then is devalued. And it's a central part of the Christian faith. Um, and what we're going to discover as we go through chapter 15 is that Paul 
takes it very, very seriously. We're going to cover it over the next three weeks, um, just because I think it is so serious and it's such an important issue. And in the first 11 verses then that we're going to look at this week, Paul just kind of lays out the foundational parts of his argument where he says about how important the resurrection is and how it's central to the gospel. So, before we look in detail at what Paul says, let's have a read at God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1, and this is what Paul says through the Spirit of God. He says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise... You have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. And this is God's word to us this morning. As I said, Paul's going to develop this argument for the resurrection through the rest of chapter 15 in a very lengthy chapter of scripture. But in these 11 verses, he lays out why the resurrection is so fundamentally important. So in verses 1 and 2, he explains that the resurrection is central to the gospel that they had received and by which they are saved. In other words, without the resurrection, there's no gospel. And without the resurrection, there is no salvation. And this is a point that he's going to come back to. But here he just lays that foundational truth down at the beginning. Then he goes on in verses 3 and 4 to explain the content of the gospel that he communicated to them and how the resurrection and the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ are central to that. And the point that he makes in verses 3 and 4 is that everything that took place in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is according to the scriptures. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential if we're going to be grounded in God's redemptive purposes as revealed in the Old Testament. And if you say that the resurrection isn't important, then you're unhitching yourself from God's plan of redemption begun in the Old Testament scriptures. And then in verses 5 through 11, he explains the numerous people that had actually seen the risen Christ and had been transformed by the risen Christ. And his point here simply is that without the resurrection of Christ, then you simply do not see this kind of transformation of life, particularly as you saw in the life of the Apostle Paul. He goes from a persecutor of the church of God to somebody who's all out preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, working harder than anybody else. How does that happen? It's only through the transforming power of the resurrection. 
And so Paul's argument here in these verses is that the resurrection is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. So let's have a a look at these verses in more detail. And so he begins in verse 1 by reminding them of the gospel that he preached to them. He reminds them that they had believed this gospel and they had taken their stand on that gospel. And Paul's joy in the gospel, of course, as he explains in Romans, is that the gospel, the good news about what Jesus Christ has done, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And it's that saving power of the gospel that grips Paul and makes him realize that it's far superior to any other message that is comprised of merely human ideas. And so he says in verse 2 that... They've been saved by this gospel if they hold firmly to it. In other words, if they start to go away and start to lean on human ideas about what sounds good and what's plausible, then the gospel is stripped of its power. It no longer becomes the saving power of God. And he says then that they have believed in vain. In other words, their faith's empty. It's not worth anything anymore because it's stripped of the saving power of God. And so saving faith is faith that stands on the truth of the gospel, the true good news, which includes the fundamental idea that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And so Paul says that unless you stand firm in that, then you don't have salvation. And it's worth reflecting on what Paul means by salvation. Because sometimes um, we get a rather truncated idea of salvation when we read the Bible. We think salvation is really about being forgiven from your sins and that's it. It's about um, escaping hell. But salvation for Paul and for the rest of the writers of scripture is salvation from and deliverance from the damaging effects of sin and death in our world. Because when you go back to Genesis and start to identify what the fundamental problem is for human beings, you discover that the fundamental problem for human beings is, as Genesis describes, sin and death. Death is the curse that has fallen on our world. And so death is the problem that has to be comprehensively dealt with in God's redemptive purposes. And so God said to Adam and Eve that in the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they would surely die. And on that day, they took of that fruit and spiritually they entered into the experience of death that would eventually end up in their physical death as well. And so the story of redemption as it unfolds through the Bible is the story of how God is undoing that curse of death and comprehensively working against death. And so when a person comes to know God through Jesus Christ and experience salvation, they go from death to life. And that's what Paul explains in Ephesians. He explains that our pre-conversion state is when we're dead in trespasses and sins and we need to be made alive. And that's what God does through Jesus Christ. But to stop there is only half the story because spiritual death is only part of the picture. God needs to deal with the problem of physical death as well. And salvation includes salvation from death in its entirety. And of course we do still experience the physical fact of death. If the Lord doesn't come, as Paul will later explain in 1 Corinthians 15, then we will go through the fact of death. But the point is that God is undoing the effect of death so that in the future, 
God will undo our own physical death as well and restore us back to life. And that's why then salvation in the Bible is this full-orbed experience of all that God is doing to undo the curse of sin and death in our world. And so Paul says that by this gospel, by this good news, you are saved. But there's another point in these verses that's worth thinking about, and that's the fact that Paul says that we must hold firmly, hold fast, stand firm on the word that was preached to us. Because if we're going to experience the saving power of God in our lives, then we have to hold firmly to the gospel. And there is an unfortunate notion that sometimes people have, that if we merely believe once, if we perhaps make a decision at an evangelistic event, then that, that sorts us out forever and that we don't need to worry then if we fall away or if we stop following the Lord Jesus, then everything's fine. But the Bible consistently affirms that to be saved is to hold fast to the Lord Jesus, is to hold firm to the gospel. I don't think this is saying that we need to constantly exert our willpower and that through sheer force of our own strength that we manage to hold on God because the Bible elsewhere explains that it is God who works in us to actually sustain our faith right to the very end. And so I think that then means that for those who do fall away, then it means that either their commitment wasn't genuine to begin with or it's simply, simply a temporary lapse and that God will restore them again. And, and we oftentimes don't know which the case is. The point is that whatever a person, um, whenever a person finds themselves in that situation where they're not holding firm to the gospel, our goal as Christians is to restore that person. We want that person brought back to the truth. But that's important for us as well. We can't rest on our laurels and say, oh, that would never happen to me because we need to hold firm to the gospel as well. And this is really important for us because over the years at Benjamin, we have seen people walking away from the gospel. They no longer hold on to the gospel that they once believed. And oftentimes it's the people that you would least expect. Oftentimes it's people that have embraced the gospel who have even preached the gospel and you think they would never walk away from the Lord Jesus. They would never walk away from the gospel. And they do. And it, it shocks us and makes us realise that, that we need God's help. We need to continually ask God to give us the strength to keep on going and to hold firm to the gospel as was given to us and as we read in scripture. Now, a person can depart from the faith in various different ways. The parable of the sower that the Lord Jesus told describes how sometimes people depart from the faith because of the cares and, and just the, the distractions of life, and that can take a person away from the faith. Sometimes it's suffering that comes along, and that takes a person away from the faith. Um, but Paul points here that one of the things that can take us away from the faith is when we start to slip away from the things that we once held to be firm and true. And so you see here for the Corinthians, they're slipping away from this idea of the resurrection as being important. And Paul's saying that's slipping away from the gospel. You're no longer going to believe the gospel if you abandon the resurrection. I think, you know, the problem here was that actually before they had started to slip from the resurrection, they must have started to slip from their awareness of the problem of death. If they had fully grasped how dreadful the problem of death really was, then they would never have lost sight of how valuable the resurrection actually was. 
It's the same too for us. We need to grasp how serious our problem is if we're going to really hold on to the gospel. Sometimes people start to undermine the problem of sin, for example, and they start to think, well, sin isn't really such of a problem, is it? God can't really be that concerned about people doing sinful things, can he? And when you start down that road, then you start to then strip away key aspects of the gospel. Because if God's really not that concerned about sin, then why did Christ die? And when you start to then go down that road, then you start to say, well, well, Christ, he mustn't have been dying because God was punishing him for our sins. Well, he must have been dying for something else then. He was just dying as a, as a martyr, for example. And you go down that road, and before you know it, you've lost the gospel. And so the key aspect, the key thing that we need to remember here is that if we're going to hold on to the gospel, we need to constantly remind ourselves of how much we need the gospel, how serious our sin is, how serious the curse of death really is. Because when we hold on to that, then the gospel appears to us as good news. It appears to us as something that we value and hold on to because we see all that Jesus Christ has done for us. And so if we want to hold on to the gospel, remind yourself of how much you really need it. And that will help you stay firm. So Paul here, he stresses that the resurrection is central to the gospel. And then he goes on in in verses 3 and 4 to explain that this comprises part of the content of the gospel that he actually communicated to them. He says that this is what he received and that this is what he then passed on to them. And so it's a concise summary of what the apostles actually communicated uh, to everyone that they met. It was a concise summary of what the early church believed about what Jesus Christ had done. Of course, Paul, he does explain in Galatians chapter 1 that he did not receive his message from any human source, nor was he taught it by any human source. And you think, well, is Paul contradicting himself here? I don't think he is. I think in Galatians 1, he establishes that God directly revealed the gospel to him, but that did not stop him from drawing on what the other apostles were teaching and saying that I'm actually in line with this. And they shared that same summary of the gospel that they proclaimed to everyone that they met. That this was the core content they wanted people to know, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And so clearly then, the resurrection is a central feature of this gospel that was communicated in the early church. Along with the death of Christ, Paul says that it is of first importance. It's crucial. But Paul's not only making the point that the resurrection is crucial because it's part of the gospel, he makes the repeated point here that it is according to the scriptures, that both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are according to what the scriptures taught. And if you abandon then either the cross or the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you're unhitching yourself from the Old Testament and therefore you're unhitching yourself from the plan of God in redemptive history. The scriptures then refers in... I think, all but one occasion in the Bible to the Old Testament scriptures. I think it refers once to Paul's writings. But elsewhere, the scriptures refers to the Old Testament, Genesis 3 to Malachi. 
Because when Paul says that what happened was in accordance with the scriptures, his point simply is that the gospel wasn't some kind of first century innovation that came about because somebody thought they would start a new religion or anything like that there. But rather, the gospel is the culmination and the fulfillment of Israel's hopes as explained in the Old Testament scriptures. And the Corinthians, even though they were Gentiles, had been included in God's redemptive purposes. And Paul tells them that they've got to situate themselves in that redemptive plan. There was no other place where they could take their stand. And they had been included in that plan and they needed to draw their roots from the Old Testament scriptures. And so that then is why um, we place emphasis in the Old Testament here at Bensham. That's why uh, over some midweek meetings I spoke about Christ in the Old Testament. And if you want to listen to those thoughts, obviously the recordings are on the website where we thought in a little bit more detail of how Christ is actually portrayed in the Old Testament. But basically, as the early Christians looked through the Old Testament, they realised that all that had taken place had happened in fulfilment of what the Old Testament had said. Isaiah 53, for example, was one of the passages of scripture that gripped the early Christians and they thought, this explains exactly why Jesus came and what he did. And so when they read Isaiah saying he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, they think, so that's why Jesus died on the cross. That's what he did for us. And it suddenly starts to make sense for them and it interprets the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But not only had the Messiah then died for their sins according to the scriptures, but they realized he was raised again from the dead according to the scriptures. Because, of course, the resurrection from the dead was something which had to be brought about through God's redemptive plan. God had to bring this about through his anointed servant, his king, the Messiah. And so in Isaiah 25, for example, you see a very clear explanation of that hope of death being rolled away. And Isaiah writes, On this mountain, Jerusalem, Zion, the Lord will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And so the Old Testament is permeated by this hope that God's going to swallow up death. And the person, as we see in the Bible, that's going to do that is the Messiah. He's going to swallow up death. And you see that very explicitly articulated in the Psalms, in Psalm 6, for example, where we read that the Messiah wouldn't be abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor would the Lord allow his faithful one to see decay, but that the Lord would raise him up, bring him to life. And so in places like Psalm 6, you see very clearly this expectation of the Old Testament scriptures that the Messiah is going to be the one who is going to swallow up death. And so he's not only going to die according to the scriptures, but he's going to be raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And this is because the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, was the one who was going to comprehensively undo the effects of sin and death. And for the Corinthians then to abandon this, to would be to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. And if they unhitched themselves, then they'd got nowhere else to link themselves up to. They were no longer part of God's redemptive program. They were set adrift in a sea of religious mysticism. 
And this is really important for us too as Christians in this century too because we mustn't ever imagine that we can do without the Old Testament as New Testament believers. Uh, One pastor a few years back rather unfortunately said, and I'm not sure exactly what he meant, but he unfortunately said that we should unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. But you don't get that idea in the Bible because you can never understand who the Lord Jesus is or what he did without seeing how he fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. And we too need to read the Old Testament and let it seep into us as a way of situating ourselves in the story of which we are actually a part. And as we read the Old Testament, We've got to see the Old Testament saints, not as strange, disconnected people living in a faraway, distant culture, but as people who were our forebears in the faith. People that we are connected to, that we don't stand apart from. And so immerse ourselves in an understanding of how we are connected to God's redemptive program, which he has brought to fulfilment through Jesus Christ, and which he will bring to full fulfilment yet in the future. And then Paul comes to his last point in this passage, and he covers that by an extensive list of the people that met with the resurrected Christ. And I think his point simply is this, that you do not get this kind of transformation of life if Jesus Christ really did not rise from the dead. If you're going to abandon the idea of the resurrection, then you're abandoning all hope of the kind of transformation that you see in people's lives. And so he says in verse 5, that Christ, he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter's Aramaic name that you see sometimes in the Gospels. This is the Peter who denied the Lord Jesus as he was being tried by the Jews and then by the Romans. Is he likely to keep on following after a crucified, rejected Messiah? Not likely, unless the resurrection really happened. And he sees the risen Christ and realizes that his abandonment of the Messiah is a problem. It's something that he cannot stick with. He's got to follow Christ. And then after the 12 saw him, Paul says that he appeared to more than 500 at once, 500 brothers and sisters at once. In other words, this wasn't just an isolated experience of transformation. This happened to hundreds of people. It accidentally puts pay to the idea that this was a hallucinatory experience. It's common for some people, after they've lost someone that they're very close to, to actually experience hallucinations of that person where they see them. But this is not something that happens to hundreds of people at the same time. And so what happens to these people, these brothers and sisters, as they see the risen Christ, cannot be explained away as something that is is just a psychological phenomenon. And Paul says that some of them are still alive. So if you want to go and speak to them, go ahead and do that. It's something which actually happened. And then he says that he appeared to James. And if you read Galatians 1.19, you see that James is the brother of the Lord. And if you look at John 7 and other passages in the Gospels, you discover that the brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus, um, as in those um, children of Mary uh, and possibly Joseph, you discover that they didn't believe in the Lord Jesus. They didn't think he was the Messiah. But then comes the resurrection and you see somebody like James suddenly coming to believe that actually this person that he thought was just his brother who'd gone a bit wild 
was actually the risen Messiah who was calling people to come to know the salvation which God offered. And then after appearing to all the apostles, Paul says that he appeared to him also as to one abnormally born. It's a very condescending way of talking about himself. He doesn't think of himself very highly and he confirms this in verse 9 because he says that he was the least of the apostles, is the least of the apostles. Why? Because he persecuted the church of God. He doesn't deserve to be an apostle. And he says, but it's God's grace that has made him what he is. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace that transformed him made him become one of the most productive of all the apostles. He's not boasting here. He's recognizing that it's the grace of God that's worked in him. But you look at the vast amount of the New Testament that Paul wrote. You see his work in Acts going across the world preaching the gospel and you realize that he was the most productive of all the apostles. And Paul's not drawing attention to himself to say, oh look at me, I'm so great. He's saying, look at what happened to me and then tell me that the resurrection didn't happen. Because he went from a persecutor of the church of God to someone who would lay down his life for the sake of Jesus. You see, Paul, he was a religiously observant Jew, was fervently committed to the faith of Israel. And when he heard about this Jesus sect that was rumbling through Palestine, he was resolved to put an end to it. And so he was traveling on the road to Damascus to put Christians in prison. What happened there in the Damascus road? I have never seen a more satisfactory explanation than the fact that the risen Jesus actually appeared to him on that road. And that's what turned him round. That's the only thing that can explain it. And those who then deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus have to come up with all kinds of implausible explanations of why so many people started to believe that Jesus Christ was really alive. It's actually even more implausible when you think about what the early Christians or what the early disciples would have actually believed. Because even though in the Old Testament, such as we've already seen in Psalm 6, you do see this idea that the Messiah would rise again from the dead, first century Jews hadn't made that connection. They hadn't seen that this is, this is what the Messiah is going to do. And so for first century Jews in Palestine, their understanding of the resurrection was that it was something that would happen at the end of time. And so you look at that in passages like Daniel chapter 12, where, where we read that at the end of history, when God puts everything right, then there's going to be a general resurrection. Those who are righteous rise to eternal life and others rise to shame and everlasting contempt. So their understanding is that eventually God's going to put everything right and there's going to be a general resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. What they did not have any concept for was the idea that there would be a resurrection in the middle of history. And so they just don't have the framework for this. And so the idea that, that they would somehow be predisposed to believe in the resurrection is simply nonsense. They didn't have a category for that. And so when they see the resurrected Christ, it breaks their framework of understanding and forces them back to the scriptures to actually understand what had actually taken place. The only thing that could have prompted them to change their minds was as if they'd actually seen the risen Christ. And so as Paul and the others meet with the risen Christ, they realize that, God had fulfilled his redemptive purposes by raising the Messiah as the first of the righteous who would later raise all of his people from the dead. 
And so what they realized then was that when they met the resurrected Christ, God's redemptive purposes, the end times that the scripture spoke of, had dawned. The God's new world that he said he was going to bring about had dawned, had broken into their world. And no, it hadn't been completely fulfilled, but it had started. There's a tension here. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ had already happened, but the disciples, they weren't resurrected yet. They experienced the new life of the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of God was not there in its fullness yet. Jesus, the Messiah, had risen and had received the fulfillment of God's promises, was reigning, but was not yet reigning visibly on earth. And so there's a tension here between what had already begun and what was yet to be fulfilled. And yet they were thrilled to realize that God's purposes had started to come to pass. And so Paul expands in this in Ephesians chapter 119, where he says that that same power that God exerted in raising Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that now works in us to make us the people that God wants us to be and to transform our lives. So that even though the resurrection hasn't happened to us yet, God's transforming power is at work in our lives. And all of this has great practical ramifications for us today because if we are tempted to doubt the resurrection, as people are tempted to do in an anti-supernaturalistic society such as we live in, then we need to remind ourselves of what happened in the first century. What could change a band of disbelieving, confused, disloyal disciples into people that were prepared to travel the world, suffer, and lay down their lives because they said that they had met with the risen Christ? Only the fact that they really had met with the risen Christ. And we need to let that reality sink into our thinking because if Jesus Christ really has risen from the dead, then our hope is not just some pie-in-the-sky hope when we die, but our hope is that one day Jesus Christ will return and that we will see him in the flesh. We will be transformed. Our bodies will rise from the dust. We will stand on a new earth with the risen Jesus and we will see him with our own eyes. We will walk with him. We will talk with him. Our hope, says Isaiah, is that we will see the king in his beauty. And so then, we've got this glorious hope that's it's an end time hope, but it's not just an end time hope because this then empowers us to live every day of our Christian lives knowing that whatever suffering we endure, whatever difficulty we endure, even if we endure death itself, it's not the end because we are not living our best life now. Our best life is yet to come. And so we wait for that day when we will be with our risen Jesus and we are prepared to endure whatever difficulty this life brings to us, knowing that our future is stored up with Jesus Christ and we hope for his coming. And until then, we serve him knowing that the same power that was worked in him to raise him from the dead is at work in us to sustain us and to turn us into the people that will be perfectly like him in the day when he comes. And so as we see in this in these 11 verses, and then later in the chapter, 
that the resurrection, it's not just an optional add-on extra to the Christian faith, that you can just take it or leave it, depending on what way you actually swing. Paul teaches that the resurrection is crucial to the gospel. Without it, there is no salvation, and you must hold firm to it. He emphasizes that it is the hope of Israel's scriptures. And as we take our place as part of their story, included as Gentiles in what God is doing in redemptive history, we cannot uncouple ourselves from the expectation that God will comprehensively undo death and do away with all of its effects in our world. And we need then to realize that that is the transforming power that took the early disciples from that trembling mob into people that were willing to lay down their lives for Jesus. And that's what transforms us too, as we realize that the risen Jesus will come back for us. And indeed that he's met with us this morning, spiritually, even though we don't see him physically. Yet he's given us physical emblems to remind us that one day we'll see him physically. And that sustains us as we hope for his return and long for that day when death will be undone and we will stand with him and in our flesh we will see our God. Let's bow and ask God to bless this word to us. Gracious God, we thank you that this hope of the resurrection is something which is wonderful and is at times too wonderful for us to grasp. We look around the world and see the decay and ruin and think, how can it all end in the dead being raised from the dust? How can it all end with those that we have loved in Christ being raised to stand with the risen Lord Jesus Christ in a new earth? And our faith at times falters, Lord. Forgive us and help us to hold on to you and help us to hold on to this hope by reminding ourselves of those events in the first century when the early disciples met with the risen Lord Jesus Christ and were utterly transformed by it. Oh then, Father, we pray that that as we have spiritually communed with our Lord Jesus this morning, that this would sustain our hope as we long for the day when we will see him face to face. For we ask it for his glory. Amen.